Lord have mercy, ladies and gentlemen, season three of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Stephen Cock Esquire, is at hand. We got a bunch of great guests lined up once again. We'll be talking some guitar. I'm sure we'll talk about food. I'm sure we'll talk about hilarity. That's just what's going to happen. So thanks for tuning in. Let's get into it. Brought to you by our good friends at Wildwood Guitars in beautiful Louisville, Colorado, and Fishman Transducers of beautiful Andover, Massachusetts. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, creatures of both night and day, time for another edition of Chewing the Gristle with yours truly, Gregory Cockery. This week we have the mighty Gretchen Men, a shredstress of the highest order, playing with the band Zepparella. She's got her own solo stuff. She plays classical. She shreds. She does it all. We had a great conversation this week on Chewing the Gristle, Gretchen Men. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, once again, we convene. For another Chewing the Gristle podcast. This week, we have the mighty Gretchen Men with us, guitar player extraordinaire. You've seen her with Zepparella. You've seen her online doing a million things. We actually first hung out virtually at a Jennifer Batten Guitar Cloud Symposium. And uh, it's great to talk to you. How you doing? Great to be here. I'm doing well. How are you doing? You know, I can't complain. Uh, you know, this whole being at home for long stretches of time, I didn't know how I would... Uh, I, I, obviously, none of us really knew how we would do if we're used to being on the road for so long. But I, I'm enjoying being at home, doing my stuff in my orange room here. I, I've got no complaints. <laughs> that's that, that's actually really something to be said during this time, because I think a lot of people have a lot of complaints. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, you know, what's interesting is the... Uh, you know, I just love playing, as I'm sure you're the same way. You know, people talk about, well, you know, that's playing out in front of people. I agree with that. There's there's that symbiosis thing that happens when you play in front of folks. Uh, but having said that, first and foremost, I just like playing. So if I'm able to play and then you do a lot of live things from home, uh, I don't know how you feel about it, but I, 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 I get a kick out of it just as much. I mean, maybe not as much as actually the playing part of being in front of people, but all the other stuff, traveling and all the other stuff that goes into doing that is a mitigating factor. <laughs> oh, I, I so agree with that. I mean, at the end of the day, uh, doing, doing music has to be because you love to do it because it's a horrible financial decision. <laughs> you know, <laughs> if you think about how many hours do we put in to say, get an you know, an hour of material together. Well, maybe you, that takes you five minutes, but it, but it takes me some, you know, a lot of time. And if you actually, I wouldn't even think to do the calculation because it would be far too depressing in terms of what that works out to like as an hourly amount. So it's like, you've got to love doing it. And I think for me, the benefit has been that I feel like once you start performing live and, and it seems like Early on, when you first start playing, that's like, oh my God, I can't wait till I have a gig. Right. And then you have a gig and then you start realizing, wow, I'm on stage for, for two hours, but all the other time I'm not getting to play. I'm not getting to practice. I mean, unless you're traveling in a cushier way than we get to travel, like, no, right. I'm, I'm loading gear. I'm packing gear. I'm unpacking gear. And, exactly. And so I get way more practice time at home. And I feel like once I started performing, it was this juggling act of realizing, well, I want to keep growing as a musician, but I have this material that I'm responsible to be delivering with a certain degree of accuracy night after night. And it isn't like you learn it once and now you have it forever, at least for me. Like I got I got to review stuff. Absolutely. So I've actually, I've loved that I've had this time to really, like, this has been like my best practice year ever. Like I've gotten to work on all this stuff that I'm like, I really need to work on that. It's like, you know, I'm not saying it's all fixed now, but it's awesome to get to practice this much. It is. And it's just fun practicing. I mean, as much, I, you know, if it was really work, I don't, I don't think any of us would really have, done, I mean, it's, it's, it obviously is work because you're putting time into it and, you know, you go over things over and over again. Like, you know, m my wife, she hears my, my son plays saxophone. This is kind of a funny story. So my youngest, um, 
you know, he likes saxophone. He does jazz band. He does various different things, but he doesn't have the bug like my oldest son did. You know, he's a professional drummer and of course myself. And I'll say to him, you know, if you ever want to jam with us, John, he's like, no, I don't want to do any of that stuff. But lately he's been practicing a ton, just going over the same things over and over again. And my wife's like, what's, what's the deal with that? I mean, I go, well, you know, it's once you get in the moment and you're doing it, it's a lot of fun. And it's like, uh, it's almost like a, a spiritual practice. It's like meditative. So my son comes downstairs and I go, so John, you're practicing a lot of you, you know, and then I started to reiterate some of those things that I felt practicing brought to the table. He's like, no, 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 dad, let's be real clear. I'm just out to humiliate that other sax player who thought he was going to be first chair. (laughs) (laughs) So revenge can be, you know. (laughs) Revenge. Well, it's funny you mentioned about the humiliation because humiliation does drive a certain, certain aspects of my practice because there's nothing like imminent public humiliation to be like, right. I really better review that song. Um, but I haven't thought of, I've never practiced to, to try to humiliate another person. I try, I practice often to try to avoid to humiliation avoid myself, exactly. but that's a wonderful new layer. I'll, I'll have to see if that might drive me in new directions. <laughs> yes. Weaponizing dysfunction. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, I have to remember not to take a sip of tea before it's your turn to talk. <laughs> oh, my God. That almost was right out the nose. Well, we could talk about a bunch of different stuff, but I, I was um, I was listening to a version of Dazed and Confused that you did with Zeparella, and I, and I loved it. And I loved it, the fact that um, it was respectful to what Jimmy did, but you also did your own thing with it, which I thought was very, very cool. And because it's obviously when you're doing kind of a tribute thing, it's easy to get into the trap of trying to sound exactly, but the fun of it is to take just the the cool aspects of a given performer and then add your own thing to it still so that people come to, to, to get that more tribute aspect. You're not disappointing them, but at the same, at the same token, you're also doing something new that is not only gratifying to you, but also people just don't want to hear the same thing done. You know what I mean? Right. Right. Now, is that a conscious decision that you made? Was it, was everyone on the same page in the band or did it just kind of develop organically? I think we're all kind of on the same page. I know when Clementine, the drummer, it's her band, when she came up with the idea, <clears throat> there there feels like something like you're on holy ground with Zeppelin. I know you're also a Zeppelin fan. Indeed. Um, and so and, and so at first I was like, are you, are we allowed to do this? Is this like is it just disrespectful to a band that that shouldn't shouldn't be touched in this way? And, and we thought, well, what if we forego some of the things that totally make sense, like, say, in an ACDC tribute band, you know, which is where Clementine and I met. It was my, my first band, actually, was an ACDC tribute band. And ACDC, so they've got so much humor in everything they do that, to me, dressing like Angus and rolling on my back and duck walking didn't feel outside of the spirit of them. And yet Zeppelin has this, they come from just such a different place that the idea of, you know, trying to mimic them felt like it didn't respect the music the way we wanted to. So we thought, well, what if we do this like as a band, but we treat the music as though we're playing Bach or something like that. And and obviously, you know, in a lot of Bach, a lot of Beethoven cadenzas and stuff like that, there's certainly moments where uh, performers are expected to improvise, but you respect the music in a certain way. So I thought if I approach this as a fan and if I, and if I am attached to something, I'm going to play it. If it's a little grace note, if it's a little weirdness, if it's a bend that's ever so slightly sharper than I would have gone for it, I, I get attached to it. I'm like, I'm going to play it like a fan. But then you realize with Zeppelin that it isn't just the, the letter of the law, but it's the spirit. And nobody took more liberties with Zeppelin than Zeppelin. Right. So to, to get up on stage and deliver absolutely note-perfect album recordings, they never did that. And some bands do that great. Get the lead out, amazing. I Like, they're so fantastic at absolutely the note-for-note, note, you know, renditions. But we thought, let's do a little bit of both. So I'll try to learn the Jimmy stuff. All, all the stuff he learned, but then if he stretches out and if he improvised, what I generally do is I will look at a number of different live versions and I'll take elements that I like from the live version. So in the Days and Confused, for example, he does uh, those those harmonics uh, at the beginning, but then he kind of plays with them a little bit more and he comes up with this other um, motive. And so I'll do that and I'll take little aspects of it, but then I'll just kind of not be surgical about it. I'll see what happens in the moment. And so much of Jimmy is playing dangerously and playing on the edge and sometimes, you know, getting a little wacky. It's really 
contrary to my personality type, I want to get stuff right. <laughs> so I can, I kind of can't plan too much or, or I'll miss the spirit entirely. So that's where we come from with it. But some songs, we just play it as is. Songs like The Ocean, it's like, that's just how it goes. And that's how the solo goes. And that's how I'm going to play it. But Days so is wrong when they you, do it live. It yeah. sounds like you like to scour scour the uh, bootlegs. I, I'm all about it. I mean, I, I I go through different phases with different artists and stuff like that. But I definitely, you know, when I was um, when I was in high school, the drummer in my band was like a complete Zeppelin fanatic. And that was back in the day of, you know, because this is before, obviously before uh, CDs. And he would deal with people at record conventions and whatnot. He had amassed this collection of cassettes of every Zeppelin tour. He had bootlegs of every gig that was, po- I mean, he would say, well, here's, here's 73 or 75. This was 69, you know, and then he had the, um, and then he would have the demo sessions, you know, the, of them sussing out. I don't know where he got all this stuff, but he had it all back in the day. But most of that stuff is online now. You can just go online and, and, and Zeppelin to their, to their credit has been pretty loosey goosey about letting people post stuff. Whereas the Hendrix people were really on it for a long time. Like anything that was cool that went up was taken down immediately. And now that's starting to loosen up a little bit and there's some great stuff to be heard, but it is fascinating to hear, you know, how page, you know, he definitely was at the high watermark. Um, it's like by the time 75 go, got around, there was really hit and miss. And and you and I, I was interested to get your take on it because I, I'm kind of of the mind of you know back then of course this is before everyone had a, a a pretty quality recorder on their phone that they could take both video you know so there was no place to hide but back then it was it was the extremist that brought along some kind of recording equipment so it was a pretty sh- a pretty small variety of people that would know the sins of Cleveland on a stormy night in 1975 or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, so they probably thought, you know what, all we have to do is show up and look the part and and do our thing and have fun. But, you know, if we if we mess up, it's not a big deal. It's more of an event of us being here uh, versus the fact of make trying to make sure that every night was as good as it could possibly. I mean, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say, but that had to have been the rationale. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it's so strange because it's so different from the mindset of today and the, and the world I grew up performing in, which is like, Hey, every time you set foot in front of other people, there's going to be somebody who's going to post your worst moment to YouTube. And then people who, and then you'll spend the rest of your next few years trying to redeem you know, a moment where you couldn't hear, hear yourself or God forbid, you just had a bad day. You know, um, it's, uh, I, I can't even imagine what that would be like to get on stage and be like, this is a moment in time, everybody. And we're, we're never going to hear from it again. Right. Um, except for the guy who brought all the recording equipment. And now everybody's right. going to just how drunk and- I was. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> um, Jimmy had some, I mean, to your point, I, I, I don't go as deep into the bootlegs as some of my friends who are like serious, serious Zeppelin nerds, which I know sounds strange given, you know, how much time I have invested in playing the Zeppelin stuff. Um, I think probably a lot of it is I just get my fill of it so often in my day job that that I'll, I, I'll listen to it and I enjoy it. I also have a, I think it makes me sad if I hear stuff like the the, the bad nights or the bad times. It's like, I don't want to like, I don't take pleasure in hearing somebody have an off night. I mean, talk about like, you know, how, how quickly I think that could be me or how often I feel that. Sure. It's me. Absolutely. I get so, it. I mean, and maybe there is something that at least is kind of comforting in knowing that even our greatest guitar gods and icons are also human beings too. And sometimes they have a bad night or they partied too hard before. Um, but I don't know, like the early stuff, like you said, I, I feel like, from a guitar playing perspective, you know, Zeppelin, Zeppelin two is really like, I, I love a lot of his stuff there, but then there's these moments here and there too, all over the place where you're like, God, that's Jimmy at his finest. <laughs> yeah. There was, there was a, um, I, I clicked on a, uh, um, you know, it's usually when I'm going to bed, I'll put the earphones on. I'll just kind of put a thing on and listen to it as I go to sleep. But there was one particular, uh, concert was like in Boston in 1970. So I think it was, or 71. It was either just before Zeppelin 3 came out or just after. 
And um, they had just gotten back in the States. And I don't know what the circuit, but it, it was unbelievable. I mean, Plant back then was spot on, but Jimmy was spot on. And he they did the acoustic set, but he did uh, Brownie Hour. I think that's how you say it, right? And uh, he did I a hope bunch it is. of That's the, how I've been saying it. <laughs> but a lot of the acoustic stuff he did was just spot on. And it was so great. And what I love about that era, too, is like, you know, even when you see, which is so different from now as well. And one of the things I love about seeing old Hendrix stuff, when you see the backstage area, about, you see Zeppelin, it's just the back of the stage is just their cases stacked up. And the guitar is just laying down on these road cases. There's no guitar stands. You know what I mean? There's And the, and the chords are everywhere. And it's just, it's just mayhem. And, um, and it's just, it's just so, and then by the, the same token, you listen to 1980 tour of, of Europe and it, it's not, you know, I don't get sad when as much when Paige goes off because it's still the groove of the band is still there. Even if he's having an off night, it, the band, when it gels, it's like, that's that thing. You know what I mean? It's, it's that can never be duplicated again. And, and just plus they always would do a little tweak with the arrangements. You know what I mean? Not to go off on a huge Zeppelin tangent, but once I, once I have coffee and start getting on Zepp, I, I kind of go off on a, a little tirade because it was just fun. I mean, that music is just so fun to play. It's fun to listen to. I mean, sitting down and playing with those records back in the day and then just you know, every now and again, unleash. It's just really fun music. So being in, in the band that you're in, it's got to be a lot of fun. It is a lot of fun. And and I don't think I could do this because I've been, you know, offered, you know, other other things along these lines. And I, well, on one hand, it's like uh, we we all have to balance our fun day job with, you know, the, the reason we want to do music, which is, you know, being creative ourselves as well. But also, I just, I always tell people, it's like playing Zeppelin, learning the catalog of Jimmy Page, it's like a guitar player's amusement park. You get to do everything. Name another band where you get to do crazy, beautiful stuff in like open tunings on acoustic. I was, you know, going off the other day about how the rain song is such a lesson in something that is so effective and yet so easy. It's like I I could show a first-year guitar student how to play that in an hour, you know, the main parts of it. And and then it's like, I'll play that, and then I'll go to something that I wrote that's just way too unnecessarily difficult, and I got to sit there with my metronome for hours on on end. And I just think, you know, another important lesson here, it doesn't – it can be so effective and and not require a huge amount of work. Um, And – and so the, the the music keeps my interest for so many reasons. It expands my vocabulary. I never I never played slide before having to play um, when the levee breaks or uh, what is and what should never be. I certainly had no excuse to abuse a Les Paul with a violin bow and everything <laughs> from you know just like his solo saying, um, "Oh, I love the solo in No Quarter so much." You know, he'll go into these like weird modal stuff, but then he'll play you know Communication Breakdown and just you know, some screaming blues stuff that just sounds so great. It's just, there's so much to learn from it. Um, and because it is so open to take moments of, of spontaneity and interpretation so that there is a little bit that's different each night, there's, it's just this endless education. Absolutely. Well, let's talk a little bit about your music, your your brand new record uh, that you sent me, which is Abandon All Hope which I love because my favorite expression is don't worry, nothing's going to be all right. (laughs) 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 But it's it's great stuff. So tell us a little bit about how that all came to fruition and uh, the inspiration behind uh, doing the uh, Dante influenced epic. Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, so I'm actually working on part two of that now. I I wish the album was new. It's my latest record, but it, it came out, Gosh, tomorrow's going to be the anniversary of the release, December 12th, um, 2016. So it's, it's, oh, so it's been not, a few yeah, years. Sorry about it's that. It's been yeah. a few years. No, no, no. It's okay. It's, it, I don't release records the way some people do, but it's, um, so it's a concept album based on Dante's Inferno. And the, the reason for the concept album was that, you know, Michael Melinda from Guitar Player Magazine and stuff, he came to me after hearing my first album and said, Hey, I've, I've got an idea, like maybe sort of a collaboration we could do. And I steeled myself for what I've heard my entire career, which is, 
have you thought about writing something more pop oriented and why don't you sing? You know, so I was already with all of my explanations about like, that's not what I am interested in doing, but instead we sat down for tea and this is before I really knew Michael very well. Um, and he just brings out this sheet of paper and it said, Michael Melinda proposal to, you know, concept album, uh, uh, Dante's Inferni- Inferno, a journey in 11 different musical moods. And I was like, are you kidding me? Like, I was this close away from being um, uh, like an English and music double major, but ended up being like, I want a little bit more variety. But like my whole family are writers. Like I, I like I was raised on this stuff, but I had not read Dante, which was like this big, obvious hole in my, you know, my reading. And I just right there, I'm like, oh, this this is what I'm going to be doing the next few years. So um, tried to up my compositional game because you think you're tackling Dante. Like I got, I got to be looking at Stravinsky, not, not just at, not just at Pink Floyd, although, you know, great concept albums there too. And, and so I, I tried to do something that, that combines some of my classical roots. I started, I studied classical guitar a bit. Uh, and I have always had this love of Baroque classical romantic and 20th century composed music but also love rock stuff. So I felt like with that album, I I stopped trying to separate the two and was just like, maybe I can just put them all together and what it is is what it is. And at least if nothing else, it's honest based on what, uh, what my musical influences make come out of me. Well, it's very, very cool. It's, it's, and it's rocking as well, which is which is always good. But the tone is great and the playing is great. And technically of course it's, it's, it's brilliant. And so Coming from a classical background, when you're composing stuff for yourself, how much of the stuff is through composed versus improvising? Or do you like to have things pretty well set? Uh, It's a good question. Um, Most of my stuff, like if I'm doing this concept album, is is composed. Although for this latest one that I'm working on, that's part two, Purgatory, I am leaving spaces within so this next one has both string quartet and woodwind trio so that's all getting composed and what i'm trying to work with is having a certain amount of framework within an area that i've designated for a guitar solo but but what i what i've been doing this time we'll see if it works is having certain key moments so that it will fall into something that's almost say more like a sonata form development section with like you know fragmentation and voices changing or melodies getting you know, going back and forth between voices. So having maybe like within say a 16 measure phrase or a solo, having, I don't know, five or six things that, that are being echoed in woodwinds and everything. So maybe in 16 measures, I'll have five gestures written that I know that that those gestures are going to be into, you know, there for whatever solo I have. So there will be something spontaneous, but then little moments that still, where it isn't just like, okay, who knows, they're, they're great improvisers like you and Steve Lukather and stuff like that. But it's like, I, I don't really feel like that. Um, I feel like that the stuff that I most stand behind are things that I've had a moment to consider. I don't, I don't feel that I'm yet the kind of improviser where my best stuff is the stuff that just comes out in the moment. I'd I like to you. be there. And, yeah. and there's nothing wrong. I mean, you know, uh, th- certainly the end goal is good music and whether that's means it's improvised or through composed is really irrelevant. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's kind well, of whatever, guess, gets, whatever gets the job done. And, and they're related, you know, improvisation, spontaneous composition and composition is selective improvisation in a way. There's still happy accidents in both and moments of being very focused, uh, knowing exactly what you intend to do and having that come out. So they, they, they relate to each other, but, um, but on the other hand, like if I'm playing with my trio live, we will improvise. You know, we might take a, a song that's written and this is how it goes and say, let's extend that section and just have a little bit of a jam there, too. So um, not not everything is spelled out in advance. I got you. So tell me a little bit about when you were you're growing up. Now, you come from a musical background to to a, a large extent. So when you decided to study classical guitar, how did that was that something, I mean, studying classic classical in general, was that something that was encouraged by your, your family or was just something you were attracted to, but on your own, or was it just like, well, get a, get a basis in this and then do other stuff or what was kind of the modus operandi? It was, it was really that I had the opportunity to study with a great classical teacher. 
I the the type of music I was listening to and that I liked was not so much classical. Although I mean, I did like it, but I was I, I was heavy into like a Steve Moore's band. Phase. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, and uh, that's what I was listening to. That and I and Zappa. So I I kind of wanted to be playing in that direction, but then when I was in college, and I'd been playing for a couple of years, but with the lack of focus that, you know, a kid who's trying to take their SATs and, you know, not flunk out a last year of high school. Um, so I, it hadn't, guitar was in my life, but it wasn't like a, a discipline. I had not said, I will now sit down every day and practice for X number of hours or minutes. And when I got to college, I was like, no, I really love this. This is what I want to do. And when I had heard that the the teacher uh, who was the teacher for like the five colleges in the area, Philip DeFremery, who's still around, still teaching, and he was a student of Segovia. I'd heard from other people in the music department, oh, Phil's like the most amazing teacher. He has the most perfect technique and all of his students have perfect technique. And I thought, sign me up for perfect technique. Like if, if, even if I don't get there, the idea of getting to study with somebody who is this, um, this good at what he does. I'm like, I don't care what style it is. Like I, I don't mind playing Bach, you know, sign me up for some, <laughs> sign me up for that. So, so for me, uh, I, I learned guitar in a very different way. I think from most people, I didn't do what I feel like most of the, most of my heroes did, which is they got a guitar, they, listen to their favorite guitar players. They slowed their record player down or, and, and then they learned the solos. For me, I was studying music theory in my classes, classical guitar. Like I, I didn't learn how to read tablature until years later. Like it was like, here's your, here's your notation. And so for me, electric guitar was me kind of applying what I was learning in my theory classes and seeing what techniques more left-hand obviously would cross over. And I could play that on my music man silhouette, but I remember the first time I realized that I had to mute notes on, you know, with high gain. Because, you know, on classical, so often you're, you're, you're trying to encourage resonances and supportive frequencies and all of that. Um, and then on electric to be like, wait, you mean I have to think about every note I'm playing as well as cancel, as opt out of the ones I don't want to be playing? Like, I remember <laughs> being like, oh, are you kidding me? Um, so there was there were some hiccups in my uh, in my playing that I feel like if I had just been playing electric guitar and rocking out from day one, I would have learned those lessons earlier, but you know, all it takes yes. is a, an amp with distortion and you, you figure that out painfully, but right. at some point. <laughs> you know, I'm fascinated to, you know, for me, everything has always been so based on, um, you know, stating a melody and then improvising. Um, and there, and there are definitely things that I do that are, 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 um, arrangements, but there's still, you know, uh, areas for messing around. It wasn't really until I started to learn some of the Chet Atkins stuff, uh, where there were like set arrangements and they were very, um, I would say just loosely affiliated with the classical mentality because they were arranged things that multiple parts going on at one time, you know, very, very technically oriented. And what I realized is that you got to practice that stuff. I mean, like, like Chad Atkins apparently had a quote, which I, which I totally could relate to once I had learned a few of these tunes. He's like, if I don't practice for one day, I can notice it. If I don't practice for two days, my friends can notice it. If I don't practice for three days, everyone, <laughs> everyone can notice it. And so I'm curious as to when you're learning these classical tunes, which have this, you know, and, and what I find is that, you know, a lot of this stuff is muscle memory. You just get it ingrained in your brain. It's muscle memory. But if you just have that split second mind meld, all of a sudden it's like you literally can't remember. And then you you got to go back to that spot. But then you have to, you know, you have to rehearse it so that those moments of not remembering it for that split second don't manifest. So what's your experience with that whole thing? Oh, you said it so well. And and I, I can just say it is so validating to hear a player of your caliber and of Chet Atkins caliber saying that because so often I think like, gosh, I've, I've spent so much time getting this piece of music down. And then if I leave it for a while, it doesn't mean it's starting from scratch. Even if I think I've forgotten it totally, it comes back way faster than if I had been learning it for the first time. But a lot of it I think has to do with your own or with me, with my own self-doubt and my, you know, feeling self-conscious, like if I'm put on the spot, it like, say this Bach prelude that, that I, I learned and I have a version that I did. It's something that 
if I'm totally relaxed and nobody's listening to me, and if I sit down to play it, I'll probably get through it. Not perfectly, not as if I had been rehearsing it, but like you said, it's just in your muscles. It's like deep in there. But then if, but then if it was like, Hey Gretchen, can you just play this right now on stage? I would be like, absolutely not. Like (laughs) I'm going to need a few weeks to get back into that. Right. Um, to, to joining the muscle memory with the conscious memory, you know, because right, sometimes exactly. in a moment where things are uncomfortable or whatever, something distracts you. For me, I have to have both the muscle memory as well as remembering like, oh, no, this is where it goes to be minor. Like I, I, I need both of those working in tandem so that no matter what happens, like I know where I am. <laughs> but right. Uh, and that and to me, the second one goes away, um, I think, more readily than just sort of like if you close your eyes and your fingers still kind of remember where they're supposed to right. go. But what do you do for that? Is it is it just like, you know, you know for all the material I, I find you it's like I always do? kind of make the analogy of I need to calibrate. You know what I mean? So if I if I step away from a piece for a period of time, <clears throat> someone says, hey, can you do that song? Or hey, or, 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 like I, I do this a lot. And you know, if I'm doing a clinic someplace and all of a sudden, just for a second, I'm, I haven't played that for a while. I'll just, I'll just launch into it and, and there'll be, and sometimes it's fine. You know what I mean? And I was like, oh, that was, that, that went great. But there's other times I could find myself in a situation where it's just like, I've played this a million times, but I haven't played it in a while. And it got to a certain part and I completely space it until I have to sit down and almost like working out. But to your point, it's like, well, you've played it before. So, but sometimes it just takes just a little unlocking of the door to remember it again. And, um, but yeah, if I, I find that I have to do a certain amount of reviewing, if I want that stuff in a performance, you know, acceptable range of performance ready, uh, readiness, if you will. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a lot of those things I feel like are not the difficult parts of tunes because the difficult parts of tunes for, at least for me, I've gone over so many times that those are the parts I'm most likely to be okay with. As long as I haven't let that aspect of my technique go. Um, Like, I'll remember the evil lick in this one song I wrote, but then the riff, I'll be like, wait, what's the finger? Did I, did I bend with this finger? Wait. And those will be the parts that aren't difficult that I have to go back and and remember why I made certain decisions because maybe your ears and your fingers remember these are the notes, but you're like, I don't think I played it like that. And then that'll get me completely disoriented until I remember what I was doing. (laughs) Well, I find that there's also a little bit of mission creep as well. There's, there'll be there'll be tunes you you even of your own or somebody else that you've been doing for a while, or you'll resurrect, or you just kind of play by memory, and then you'll go back and realize that's not the way it goes. <laughs> oh my god! Story of my life. I've done like Zeppelin songs where, like, you know, I didn't play any Zeppelin for like a year. I'm, this was the most time I've ever had off since I started performing. And I think for many of us, but, um, but having even more than a month off just never happened. And so I put the Zeppelin stuff aside. I'm like, I'm going to work more on improvisation and I'm going to write an album and all of that. So when, when it came time to get stuff back up and running, I realized there were a lot of things that I heard differently. Something I've noticed recently is you can only play a little bit worse than you hear, you know, something that I may think I nailed 10 years ago, I'll listen to you now. And I'm like, uh, no, that's totally not how it goes. And, and so embarrassing because of course, like, you know, if you're playing in a Zeppelin tribute band, you're supposed to have done this right. But the point is, is that as you grow as a musician, as your ears and your subtleties, you know, deepen, there are things that like, I realize, oh, I've just been doing it that way. But it was only through the process of having to relearn it that I reconsidered everything I was doing and uncovered some embarrassing mistakes that, that I have since fixed. And probably in another 10 years, I'll uncover embarrassing mistakes I'm making now. <laughs> oh, I understand. There'll, you know, there'll, there'll be a certain little tune or something that I might allude to in a, in one of these little medleys or something like that. And then for whatever, like, you know, I, just going to sit down and learn that too. And I never really learned it. And you go in, you're like, I've been doing this part wrong for years. <laughs> you must just like, Oh, well, maybe that's just the way he's hearing it. But you know, what are you going to do? It's, it's just one of those things. It is. I mean, and it's why nobody needs to get as mad about music as some people do. Right. Well, as I like to say, if music is making you angry by, for whatever reason, you're doing it wrong. 
<laughs> yes, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. It's like maybe there's some displaced stuff going on here. Right, exactly. So when you went to school for, so you majored in classical guitar. Was it performance? Was that the? I majored. The, I majored in music, um, and my my instrument was classical guitar. Um, the school where where I went wasn't like a big music school. They had a music department, so it wasn't like they had degrees within the department. It was like you got a music degree, and then within that degree, you sort of chose what your focus was. So I was studying classical guitar, and then I took as many composition courses as I could. But it was a small, it was a small department, but great teachers. Cool. Yeah, I, I had a similar thing. I went to a, a university in Wisconsin where it was a it was a smaller school, but the music de- music department was good. But I really majored in beer. But we won't get into that. But um, <laughs> I was curious to ask you about. Are. So as the story goes, you get your degree, and you're kind of like, well, what am I going to do with this degree to make a living? And then you ended up going to flight school for. Oh so yeah. D- describe to me your <laughs> when, when you were coming to grips with you know what to do with your music degree. Let's let's start there, and then and then go from there to the the friendly skies as it were okay okay um so one of the things that i noticed when i was getting my music degree i i I was such a nerd in high school that by the time i got to college i didn't realize that these advanced placement classes that i had just sort of been taking because that's what was being offered to me that they were actually counting towards college credits right and so when i got to college they were like uh do you want to be a second semester sophomore and i'm like how much am I paying? Yes, I do. Right. So I'm so I ended up graduating quicker than I had expected and feeling really underprepared to now be a professional guitar player. Because at the end of the day, I hadn't really been playing all that long. And I felt like I had a ton more to learn. And I felt like it was also kind of just grotesque the idea that now I had like a degree in music and I barely felt like I knew like I didn't feel like I I don't I still don't feel like I know what I'm doing, but like I really was conscious of how much I didn't know what I was doing. Meanwhile, uh, having friendships or, or being mentored by people, some of whom were wonderful and joyous and loved music, but some of whom were also, you could just see, were jaded and discontent right. with their lives and mad all the time and, you know, so just unhappy. And I thought, God, I feel so lucky to have a passion. Like, I feel so fortunate that music brings me so much joy how do I protect that? How do I not become like these guys right. who are mad all the time and jaded? And I thought, well, what if I don't expect anything from music? What if what if it isn't about what can music bring to me, but how can I most continue to love and enjoy and learn this language that has become my favorite language? And I thought, well, if I don't ask anything more of it, if I don't take a gig that makes me feel like I want to go, like, you know, put a gun in my mouth or something right. not to put, I'm sorry, I shouldn't joke about that stuff. Um, but something that, that allows me to approach music from a place of, do I want to do this? Does this increase my love of music and does this increase my ability to get better at it? Uh, and right around that time, and this is the, the kind of the silliest things of why little tiny, almost serendipitous moments can, can make, for big, you know, branches on your life's path is I was really obsessed with the Pink Floyd song, Learning to Fly. Just happened. That was just spinning a lot in my CD player. And right around that time, I saw a sign up at my college saying, you know, local airports offering discounts for college students. And it was like $99 for three lessons. And I'm like, I got some Christmas money. I'm going to go take a flying lesson. So I just did it totally because I thought it would be fun. I've always loved roller coasters and uh, stuff like that. So I took a couple, I took the three lessons, had a great time, quickly realized I'm a college student. I do, there's no way I can afford an expensive hobby, you know? And, and it was when I graduated and I started thinking like, okay, do I want to go back to graduate school immediately or like, what else could I do? And when I looked into it, I thought, well, what if I got a really smart day job, meaning smart, meaning like that, uh, that it didn't drain me of my will to live. Cause I had worked, you know, whatever at a, at a bar and in retail and all the things that really are depressing and, and made me come home, not wanting to practice and just demotivated. What if I did something that was 
mentally engaging enough that when I came home, I'd be excited to practice. And I thought, well, gosh, I know how much my flight instructor makes because, you know, that seemed like a good amount of money. And it seems like it would be kind of a fun thing to do. And when I looked into it, flight school, if you, if you did it with a certain degree of intensity was about a year. And I thought, and it was about the same price as my college. And I thought, well, if I'm getting out a year early and it's about the same amount of time, about the same amount of money, and now I have a music degree and, you know, various pilots licenses that will allow me to work as a professional pilot. Great problem solved. So so I did that as a way of not having to work at a bar or in retail and to be able to continue to learn and um, grow as a musician without the pressure of uh, doing stuff that demotivated me. Wild. And it was and it was fun, I would imagine. I'm, I'm kind of a it's interesting because I've always been an airplane fanatic as far as like just the, the vehicles themselves. Uh, I always go to Oshkosh Air Show every year, which is right up the road and all that kind of stuff. But but when I first had to start traveling, I hated flying because I, you know, and I think what it was is that I, I just not being in control. Not, not that I'm a control freak, but not having any control is something that would freak. So every time I'd fly, I'd like, I'd listen for the flap. I knew every sound and what it was. And I'd be like, why aren't the flaps out? Why are the flaps still out? You know, it was always good. And then finally, you know, when I started traveling a bunch, then I, I just, now nothing bothers me. Like, oh, well, what's that? <laughs> it, it doesn't bother me. But at first I was paranoid. Uh, so for you, I mean, what, how has it been for you now that you know everything that happens with, with flying? Do you, are you comfortable flying or in the back of your mind, are you critical for what's going on? Or you're just like, it, it is what it is. The chances of anything happening are like nil to none, yada, yada. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of the, the latter category of just feeling I'm, I'm relaxed in the plane. I don't, I don't mind turbulence. The, the worst, the, you know, my biggest concern is whether the person next to me is going to throw up on me. Right. Yeah, but for me, I'm like, <laughs> Which is a legitimate concern in this day. It is. It is. Uh, so, I'm okay with that. I I think what my time at the airlines afforded me was the knowledge that gate agents and flight attendants have a lot of power over whether or not your guitar gets on the plane with you. So let this this be a warning to to all guitar players. Gate agents have an insane amount of power with regards to you and your instrument. Always be nice. Always show up early, like, and flight attendants as well. I've, you know, as flying for the airlines for a brief stint, as I did, and one time having to check my guitar with a crew tag on it, right? So the baggage handlers know this is this is somebody who's flying or working on the plane. And the the case came back. It was a hard case, fortunately. Just it looked like they were were like mad at me. And I thought like, wow, because this is pretty easy to track. Like all you have to do is get on the phone with somebody and be like, who are the baggage handlers in Chicago or something like that? And, and, and theoretically you could, you could have made a big stink about it. Uh, it's what, it's when I realized like, okay, fly with your guitar as, you know, as carry on, if you can check how big the overhead spaces are in advance, get there early. And if you have to check it, you know, I make sure it's insured <laughs> because right. I, I remember just being like, wow, it's scary. It's scary as a guitar player to fly with your, your instrument. Um, it is. So you, so you always carry yours on. I do, but I also have, uh, I sure try to, but what I did is I invested in a BAM case. Do you know those? They're, they're really light. They're really expensive. I mean, seriously, like the, the case is, you know, a good percentage of what probably most guitars cost, but, um, it's light and it's, it's a hard enough case that, you know, if I had, it's, it's not so big that a flight attendant looks at it and say, there's no way that's going to fit in the overhead case. It's really streamlined. And, and yet it's, uh, uh, it's a secure enough case that if it had to get checked, like your guitar might have a, a, a solid chance of getting through to you on the other end. Unscathed. Right. Well, you know, I've, I've gone on different, you know, kind of tangents where I've had, um, you know, going over to Europe, couple times a year, a couple, three times a year, especially back in the day, I was like, okay, well, am I going to do my double bag and check it or, or put it in the overhead? And then I got one of these, uh, flight cases and they're, they're made in England. Um, I just got a newer one. Cause the, the first one I got was actually a fender thing. Uh, but I found that they were, they actually copied this guy's company in England. So I got it from, it's called, uh, 
the guy's name is John Dixon. It's called the Flying Scout, and you can get three guitars in there, and it's corrugated steel. It kind of looks like a um, kind of looks like a golf case. So, and it's under fifty pounds. It, it's it's standard baggage. I can get I can fit three guitars in there, and my guitars are pretty light, so it's under fifty pounds, and it's all well well and good. So, and I haven't had any major catastrophes except for the fact that the way that they're because it functions as a guitar stand as well. So you take the thing off, and you oh, can, good, yeah. But the problem is, is that you know um, TSA is always going in there, and then they unhook the guitars, and so they're. <laughs> They're doing battle inside the thing. So I've I've had like a little chip out of the headstock on my Les Paul once. And <clears throat> that's probably the worst thing that ever happened. But there's a lot of road rash on the back of, uh, especially, I don't know why the Les Paul gets all the beating. But uh, uh, but for the most part, I, I still like doing that because then I just don't have to think about it. There's nothing more stressful, at, to your point of thinking, is it going to fit on this plane? Are they going to give me crap? You know, and, you know, especially for some reason, because, you know, of course, you know, you're always trying to get, you know, loading on the plane as early as possible so that these don't become an issue, especially when you're flying overseas. But sometimes it's out of your control. There's nothing worse. Is it going to fit? Oh, but anyway, what are you going to do? Yeah, this is, it's true. These are, these well, are our uh, these are these are first world problems, I guess. <laughs> they are. And, and I feel like at this point, you know, flight attendants have bigger fish to fry than the musician who's just, you know, sheepishly trying to get, you know, their guitar to fit. And, right. and in general, I've just found that if you're cool and helpful or don't draw a lot of attention to yourself, um, I've I've even partnered up with other guitar players that I see on a plane where I'm like, hey, your bag, my bag, we're going to we're going to put our guitars together. We're going to clear out this overhead space for people. It's like flight attendants don't want to have to, they want less to deal with, not more. So I've I've tried, I've tried to do that. And, um, and what I always make it a point to do is whether or not they have been cool about me bringing on my plane, uh, my guitar is every time I'm leaving, I make it a point to thank them and say, thank you so much for being cool about having me bring on my guitar. This part of why I fly this airline. And I figure I'm setting the stage for other guitar players in the future, you know, to be like, oh, yeah, maybe we should be cool about guitars, you know? (laughs) Absolutely. We interrupt this regularly scheduled gristle-infested conversation to give a special shout-out to our friends at Fishman Transducers, makers of the Greg Koch Signature Fluence Gristle Tone Pickup Set. Can you dig that? And our friends at Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, bringing the heat in the shadow of the Rocky Mountains. Well, I, I wanted to unpack a little bit when you said you were a Steve Morrison Zappa fan, because I uh, I'm a fan of you know Dixie Dregs. I mean, I'll never forget one of the it was right after um, the first Steve Morris record came out uh, when he had that just that that record, the introduction. He played at a small club in uh, Milwaukee here, and I went and I was literally right on the stage, right in front of him, and it was it was just awesome, you know, especially to hear him play you know tunes like Pride of the Farm and stuff like that. Um, you know, up close and just like, how is this even possible? So it was an awesome thing to behold. But by the same token, I grew up just loving Zappa. Um, but to me, it makes a lot of sense, especially with your interest in classical, because they were both in their own way influenced by classical composition and approached things in that way. Do you think that that was just a subliminal thing for you? Like, oh yeah, I guess these guys were in classical as well. Or do you think it was all, or did, were you aware of that the whole time? I think I think some of it is that I was drawn to the people I was drawn to because I think I like musical dialogue. It's not to say that there aren't amazing tunes or records that involve the guitar sort of as a real soloist instrument, but I think something I've I've loved about both of them, also J- Jeff Beck as well, is that all of them they surround themselves with these amazing musicians who are not treated as accessories but as like main players. So instead of, for me, it's more interesting to go see, you know, say a, a play that has multiple characters interacting. It's the interactions that make for fun stuff and drama and action and all of that. Not to say there's not some great, you know, one man plays written sure. too. But I think that's always been something that I've liked, the, the different textures, different timbres, um, different pairings of instruments, you know. Uh, I always felt that like the Dixie Drags, you know, like the Mahavishnu Orchestra, it's like you get these orchestral sounds in this really compact, you know, ensemble. And of course, Zappa as well. 
So I, th- I think I like that. I think I just liked the variety that comes from it and, and the thoughtfulness. They both have right. incredible attention to detail. Absolutely. It's, you know, it's wild being a, um, a Zappa enthusiast. Cause you know, back in the day, you know, I had like 10 Zappa records and, and considered myself a fan. And then, and then I got to know Dweezil a little bit and I go out to the show and I'm like, what is that tune? And then realizing that there was like, you know, 10 records is nothing. I mean, you, you start digging into the catalog of, of, of tunes that the guy had and it's just, it's astounding. I mean, he literally was composing every day, like all day. And yeah. it's, it's wild. I mean, it's, 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 it's very, very inspiring. Um, in a lot of ways. And at the same token, it's kind of like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad though that I can <laughs> step away and have a life other than that, because that's, uh, you know, he definitely got a lot of life in of those 52 years of, of, of creating, you know what I mean? Most definitely. Most definitely. That's a, a lot deep of material. It is. Do you have a favorite album? I got to ask. Well, I do have, uh, I've got a thing for the, you know, the early seventies stuff, you know, apostrophe and overnight sensation and live at the Roxy are, are some of my, are my all time. Of course, Joe's garage and, uh, Zoo Delures I really like, uh, but I got that record with sleep dirt on it. And I love that record. And then I ended up, I, and then I never had, um, uh, another record from that era. Um, trying to think of the one with, um, I'm spacing it now. Uh, but it's right around the time of, uh, overnight sensation. Um, Anyway, I'm spacing it, but those, and then, and then I got shake your booty later on and all the other, and then I started to compile more of them. But early on for me, it was, it was apostrophe overnight sensation and live at the Roxy and elsewhere are my favorite ones. Right. Right. Oh, those are all great ones. Yeah. And, well, and How about I feel you? Like this, oh, well, Joe's garage was a uh, Demaras was the one that first got me into it. Right. Um, and, you know, and I, I was a, a kid and my dad was writing an article, um, on Zappa. So it's like, he had these CDs around and I was like, Oh, what's this? You know? So um, songs like Stevie spanking, you know, for a kid, you're like, Oh right. my God, this is the craziest thing I've ever heard. You know? <laughs> um, so I loved that. And I loved shocking my friends, you know? Uh, and, but then I, oh gosh, I feel also like a zap a zappa dilettante because I only have you know forty or so of the albums. <laughs> um, I I gotta say I love the Yellow Shark stuff. I love the stuff he did. You know with you know the um, you know with the orchestral stuff. I Joe's Garage is always a favorite. You know Watermelon and Easter Hay. I feel like it's one of the most. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. Um, yeah, I, I couldn't pick. I did do a special studies on Zappa for my in my senior or my last year in college. I did uh, an analysis of the, of the Shake Your Booty Tango and the Girl in the Magnesium Dress. And my very classically oriented department was like, "Okay, we'll let you do this." And I was like, "Personal victory." <laughs> Although perfect. then I realized, then I realized I had to go through and actually come up with something that sounded like a college paper on this. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'll tell you the what, Zappa your- is. Going down the rabbit hole with Zappa, not only just musically, but just hearing him talk on a variety of subjects. I mean, he was pretty spot on about a lot of stuff. I mean, he he was an extraordinarily perceptive individual. Yes, yes, definitely was, definitely, and a a great loss. I, I was very, very heartbroken when we lost him so young. Yes, not, not, uh, Quite sad, but I think that uh, Dweezil's doing a hell of a job carrying the torch. His bands have always been great, and he plays great, and he's a cool cat, and it's it's uh, it's all good. So we've got that. We do have that, and they are fantastic indeed. You know, I was thinking the other day, or I think it was like a year ago or so, it was like um, a week of birthdays of musicians, and um, Keith Richards' birthday was right around where uh, Frank's birthday is. And I did a version of, <laughs> I combined Beast of Burden with uh, uh, a watermelon Easter hay, and it works quite well. <laughs> oh, gosh, I bet that does. <laughs> so that's kind of the kind of a dichotomy because you, you, you seldom think of Frank Zappa in, uh, inhabiting the world of, uh, or vice versa, of Keith Richards. Although I, I do understand that apparently Mick Jagger used to hang out over at Zappa's house and they would discuss. Uh, oh, really? 
all, all manner of intellectual efforts within the confines of their uh, interests. So I thought that was interesting. It'd be fun to be a fly on the wall for those. I was just going to say, can you imagine? <laughs> yeah. Fascinating. So what else do you have planned in the near future here? I mean, obviously with uh, the cove still kind of, you know, lurking, uh, what's, what's your perspective on, on getting back out there? Are you, um, are you kind of, you know, being cautious at this point? Um, what's your kind of view of getting back out there and doing any kind of regular touring or that yeah. kind of stuff? We've, we have done some playing. We're being, we're being, we're trying to be responsible, um, at least within the group. Initially, I think there were questions of like, is it responsible to be the reason for a large gathering and things like that? And right. we kind of came to a place of like, look, we, we're not here to police anybody. Of course, we don't, we all want the same thing, which is for a pandemic to end and nobody to get sick and die. Right. Um, and so what we've done is, I mean, obviously venues and States and cities all have their own sort of local, um, uh, regulations. What we've just kind of said is like, look, we're not going to wear masks on stage because like our singer can't. And, right, you know, we, we, we'll keep ourselves safe. So what we're just doing is we're, uh, having the audience displaced, you know, it means that some of the, like the smaller clubs that are, you know, where you, you play two nights and, and it's really packed that we just can't do it right now. So we're playing clubs that where there's enough room to kind of put, you know, a few feet between, you know, your, your, your pedal boards and, and your, uh, and the front row who, you know, uh, right. invariably the masks come down and people, you know, start. Yelling sure. Absolutely. Stuff. And it's yep. like, you don't want to be up there like wagging your finger at people. Um, you want people to be having a good time. So we've been doing that, but it's meant that a couple of venues that we play and we love to play, we're, we're just waiting until we can play them with enough, you know, with enough space so that nobody's, you know, being hassled too much. And, um, and, and then in the meantime, I feel like, um, it's been interesting to to devote more of my time outside of playing live. Um, well, you you also do shows on uh, together, right? Yes, exactly. Yep, that's been okay, a lot of fun. I just, I've just started doing that. I've got one coming up on the nineteenth, and then something also in January. So that's fun. It's its own version of scary to me, though. It's sort of like it feels like it. Yeah, I, at least I feel like with live, when you're in an audience, even though you know everybody's got their phones out, there's still that element of like, hey, I'm here. I'm with my band. Like, let's just, let's do our best, but you know, whatever, whatever happens, like you're in the moment, it's not the same feeling. And so with the online stuff, I'm like, this is, this is going to be a good hurdle for me to try to, to overcome, which is the sense that of having on one hand, like the performance mindset, but also recognizing that it's got the same level of specificity of like a recording session of like, okay, there, there there isn't that room sound or whatever. It's like, nope, every single thing it's magnified. Um, so it's, it's, it's fun. It's exciting. Um, I'm, I'm loving doing that. I'm doing some demos for, you know, different, um, different companies and working on some educational stuff. Uh, just staying, staying busy. There's, there's so many aspects of music to work on at all times. So this is true. Yeah. It never gets boring. That's for sure. You know, we, in it was interesting because I, I didn't really have much booked prior to September. So, because everyone I was talking to was like, nothing's going to happen until the fall at the earliest. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds about right to me. And all of a sudden it got to be like the beginning of May and everyone's like, yeah, screw it. Let's just go. And I'm like, wait a minute, what? And then, and then everyone started booking gigs and people are out there doing stuff. But I was like, this seems a little crazy to me, you know? So we started doing gigs in late August and we had a very busy September, which was great, but it was mostly outdoor stuff. It was all outdoor stuff. So it wasn't really an issue, but we had a tour booked in Europe for November. Uh, it was going to be like a three weeker. And in the beginning of September, I canceled it because it just seemed, you know, just, I I guess my, my mindset is this, is that if I'm in driving distance from home, I'll risk it. You know what I mean? Because then you're not dealing with flights and dealing with what if one guy gets, you know, sick, you know, if I'm in Europe and any one of us gets it and then we have to be quarantined, well, there goes that, you know what I mean? Or, 
we can't get into this country now. And so I just, I, I just would rather err on the side of caution. So at this point, we've got some things booked. You know, we got a thing, um, we got a New Year's Eve thing that we're doing. And I've been sitting in with bands uh, when they come into town. Uh, Set in with the uh, Rick Nielsen's band with his, um, uh, with his son Dax and stuff. It was fun. I had never played it. Well, I, I take that back. When I was in freshman high school, I was in a band that did a bunch of cheap trick tunes. Um, but it had been a while. And I played with Rick doing this thing, this Les Paul uh, anniversary party out in Waukesha, Wisconsin here. That was a few years back. And I remember learning a few cheap trick tunes. There. I was like, this shit rocks. And then Dax got a hold of me. And he's like, hey, if you could learn this tune and this tune. And I was like, these tunes are wicked. And then I showed up at the sound check and we ran through it. And Rick's like, well, why just play two? Why don't you play more? So I ended up playing on about five tunes. And that's all I've been able to listen to lately is these cheap trick songs because they rock with the intensity of a thousand suns. And it's just <laughs> and it's just go for broke, rocking mayhem. And the fact that they're from Rockford, Illinois, makes it even better. But anyway, so, uh, but that place was packed, you know what I mean? And I kind of stuck backstage and got out right away. And, you know, I, you know, and I'm, I just had my booster the other day and all that kind of stuff, but I don't, it's, it's hard. It's really hard. So we got a gig on New Year's. We've got uh, a little mini tour kind of in February. We're going to go to uh, Chicago, Cleveland, something or other. But again, that's all kind of driving distance so if anything goes to hell in a handbasket we'll just get back in the minivan and drive back home but um you know other than that you know there's kind of a thing lurking in april that we might do overseas but you know i I, i'm not too worried about the omnicrom other than the fact that it seems like it's going to be exponentially more transmissible although the disease doesn't seem to be as as harsh but um you know the bottom line is it's just not over yet it's just going to be a, a menace for a little bit. So luckily, all the stuff we're able to do from home, I mean, I do, you know, four to five live streams a week and and those are going great. And as you said, you know, all the educational stuff and the gear demos and and people are buying musically oriented stuff like it's going out of style. So I was very, consider myself very, very fortunate that I had those relationships prior, you know, to the pandemic because it was very easily kind of uh, morphed into doing it from home. So uh, luckily that's all good, but um, I'm, I'm just kind of approaching the live thing with caution and yeah. Driving distance is kind of a good, good modus, modus operandi for now. I think that makes sense. You know, and, and for me, it's like we, we got, we learned a, a, an important lesson when we played our first shows back, they were in New York and you, you go in and, and you hear things are going to be a certain way. Right. And then you get there and it's like, oh, no, that's not what was said. And, you know, so a little bit of sort of realizing, OK, there has to be a really clear understanding so that everybody's, you know, the the same amount of on the same page. And even then, like with my being really careful with, you know, masking and, you know, waving instead of hugging and all of that you know, we're still on a plane for six hours and I came home and I got a terrible cold and I just think, okay, one, it wasn't COVID, but I thought, what if, what if I had come down with this before we left? Like we would have lost all of our money on me having to like quarantine in a hotel room for, you know, it's like, and you realize, oh my God. So that's why the being within driving distance of your house is so sensible. Yeah. So luckily, I mean, I do feel bad for the people who, you know, 99% 99% of their income is playing gigs. I mean, I, I mean, I, I, I don't wag my finger at anybody for doing anything, uh, but I'm just so grateful I'm not in, that, in that position because that would really, then you're going to, then you got to make tough decisions and, and just kind of go with it and hope for the best. And I'm, I'm just very, very glad that, you know, I've uh, managed to avoid that, to be honest. Good for you. Yeah. Good. Good. So, so, uh, so your Bay area through and through, right. You still live there. I do. Um, you know, I've lived in different places. I went to school on the East Coast, but um, my dad's in the area. My sister, my nephew, my band is based in San Francisco. I don't. I, I don't expect that I will never live anywhere else. But for now, it makes a lot of sense. Well, it's a beautiful place. I mean, I, every time I go out there, I'm like this. It's just magical. Where are you from originally? You're in. Nashville. I'm in Wisconsin. I still live oh, in the Milwaukee Wisconsin. area. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Oh, cool. I don't know why so, I thought you were in Nashville. Because you have no, such good tone. no, I've, I've <laughs> you know, it's been an interesting thing. I've, um, you know, I always thought, well, I always wanted to have my own band. So my thought was, well, it doesn't really matter where I am if I'm doing my own music. And then I just started 
So I thought it got to be pretty well known here in town. So I thought, well, this is my insurance policy. You know, I can make forays into going out and doing things on a more grander scale. But at the end of the doggone day, I could still have a home base where I could, you know, conjure up some kind of a a living as it were. And that's worked out for the, you know, for the, for the most part. And plus, you know, once they started having kids, it's a good place to, uh, to raise the kids and so on and so forth. My family's all around here. And, and plus it's smack dab in the middle of the United States. So, you know, it's easy to fly here to anywhere. So it, it turned out good. You know, and over the years I thought, well, you know, if I was, you know, I always kind of, my son's a musician, right? And so, you know, he plays in my band and plays in a few different other bands and, you know, and then he has to make his decision. Well, maybe, of course, he plays a lot in Minneapolis and has a lot of, you know, and I know a bunch of people up there as well, which has a whole another music scene up there, right? Uh, but, you know, the difference between being here in like Nashville or L.A. or something like that or San Francisco is that, you know, when you're at a gig and you're you're hiring musicians to kind of come in at the last minute or you're sitting in with somebody or the sound man, it's like, yeah, well, he's the guitar player for this band. And that guy does sessions for this. But, you know, the, the, just the networking angle of just like happenstance doing things that are, you know, more substantial real world, real world music industry stuff is going to be exponentially more possible in those places. Right, uh, right. But, you know, having said that, I, I don't regret it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, and I think it's so different now too. Like so much is online, certainly within COVID, like the COVID new paradigm, it's like all bets are off. But I feel like with so much stuff being online, there is a lot more flexibility for musicians on where they want to live. Right. Which is good. Yeah, for sure. Which is a good thing. Yeah, yeah, I love visiting Nashville, but I, I, I like going and I like leaving. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like how I feel about L.A. Yes. My friends yes. down there, lots to do down there. Happy to not live there. Right. Which is good because then you look forward to going. Exactly. Exactly. Then it's a fun thing as opposed to like, you know, having to deal with all of the L.A.ness of it all the time. Right. Exactly. Well, listen, thanks so much for uh, taking the time to have our conversation. It was fascinating. Great to get to know you a little bit more. And hopefully we'll get to uh, cross paths here in person sooner than later. I would love that. Oh, my gosh. Let's hope so. Thank you so much for having me. It's really quite an honor. Like You, oh, you are well, thank such you an so incredible guitar player. I look up to you immensely. And you, oh, know, you have goodness. some of thank my greatest so heroes on your show. So thank you. It's really, well, really an absolute delight. pleasure. All right, Gretchen, have a good one. We'll see you soon. Thank you. Okay, bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to Chewing the Gristle. We certainly do appreciate it. On behalf of Wildwood Guitars of Louisville, Colorado, and our friends at Fishman Transducers, we say, don't be a stranger now. Keep on coming back. We're going to keep on giving her.